So as John said, we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Barna, and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon the Berethite from the tribe of Benjamin. Biroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Biroth fled to Gitaim and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Methibosheth. Now Rechab and Barna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Barna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Barna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Zeklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Uh, will you pray again with me as we come to reflect on this part of God's word? Our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we, we thank you that you teach us through it. We ask that you would teach us, encourage us, challenge us according to your will and our need, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, uh, in recent weeks, for the first time in 70 years, we've seen the changing of the British monarch. Uh, the Queen's funeral last Monday uh, was, um, was apparently the most watched church service in human history. Um, I can't remember the, the figure, but it was in the, in the billions, I think, of people who watched uh, her funeral. And what a great service it was. Uh, I mean, the, the Bible readings, the prayers, the sermon, they conveyed much of the gospel of Jesus, of, of King Jesus. I thought it was a great uh, testament to the Queen's faith, which uh, I understand she planned the service herself uh, some time ago. So uh, that was a really significant event. Also in these recent weeks, through our preaching series in 2 Samuel, we've been following the, the changing of the monarch of ancient Israel. Uh, after King Saul has died and David has been established as king, firstly over Judah, king over God's people. 
Now, for us today, the, the changing of a monarch is uh, of, of, well, it's, it's no doubt significant, a significant event for some, and in one sense for all of us in some way, it's significant, it was significant enough to give us a public holiday. Uh, but for most of us at the end of the day, a new monarch doesn't make a big difference. However, unlike us in ancient Israel, this changing of the king was a very big deal. The events surrounding this change presented a significant crisis for the people of Israel. And we see that in today's passage, just to illustrate that in 4 verse 1, we read that upon hearing the news of the death of Abner, the commander of Saul's army, it says there that all Israel became alarmed. That's perhaps putting it mildly. It could be translated, all Israel were terrified. This was a distressing, unstable, threatening situation, which we're going to unpack. And uh, as we do, we'll see that the the events that unfold, we'll see people trying to, to find their way forward in the midst of these great challenges. And in this, I think there are some, some parallels and there are some lessons for us, even though the for us, the place of the monarchy is very different to the place of the monarchy in ancient Israel. There's still a lot about life for us today that, that is, is much the same. In many ways, life for us today is hard. It's distressing, unstable at times. And I'm, I'm sure we can all testify to that in different ways. I mean, it's the, it's the end of the school term. Who's tired? Show of hands? Yeah. Those who don't have their hands up, it's because you're too tired to, to, to lift your arm. Uh, I mean, teachers, students, parents, or, or parents of small children, who's tired? Are you still awake? Are you with me? Uh, p- parents who are both teachers and parents of small children, man, you must be really, really tired. Uh, tiredness, we, we experience that. When we face stress, we face busyness, sickness, pain, weakness. Some of us are grieving facing relational difficulties, financial stress. So on a personal level, things can be tough. Uh, I think on, uh, in our culture, things are increasingly tough. There's a growing hostility and a, and a rise of militant individualism and an intolerance, which impacts on us in all sorts of different ways. I mean, COVID has impacted on us, uh, on our social and relational and mental health. Um, I think we can see a, a lingering impact of it in our church, I mean, pre-COVID, a good week, we, we would see 160 people at church. These days, 120 feels like a big week. We're, we're scattered, we're dispersed, we're perhaps drifting, perhaps watching online, perhaps just less regular, less committed. Things can be tough. Across our world, things are broken. There's war, hostility, uncertainty, economic pressures. Now, I don't say all this to depress you, but just to, to help us to face the reality that life in this world can be tough and it can, it can be hard to see the way forward. And yet in God's kindness, he shows us the way forward. And we ought to look to him, we ought to look to his word, such as in today's passage, because I believe there's, there's valuable lessons for us to learn along the way as we follow this this changing of the monarch in ancient Israel. How do we find the way forward as we live in this distressing, unstable and threatening world? Well, just to recap where we're up to, and if you haven't been 
here or haven't been following along, it's, it's helpful to understand the, the lie of the land as we come into chapter 4. Uh, the first king of Israel, King Saul, had died. He was killed in battle. Uh, we read that at the end of, of 1 Samuel. And David had, had long been promised by God that he would become king. In chapter 2, we saw that he was made king over Judah, the uh, southernmost tribe of Israel. Uh, but the journey uh, to being made king over the northern tribes of Israel, that's been a, a longer, more convoluted one. Uh, I'll give a summary of the, the last couple of chapters, the story so far, with a, with a few illustrations uh, on the slides to, to communicate that. So when Saul was king, the commander of his army was Abner. When Saul died and David was made king, instead of switching his allegiance to David, instead of doing that, Abner appointed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as a rival king over Israel. Now David also had a commander of his army, Joab. And so we have two rival kings with two rival commanders of armies. How will this get sorted out? Who will be king? Now in chapter 2, Abner and Joab, they seek some kind of diplomatic negotiation at first, but it turns into a bloodbath. Abner's men come off worst, but in the process, Joab's brother Asahel takes on the top dog Abner, ignores his repeated warnings and ends up dead at Abner's hand or I should say his spear. Then in chapter 3, Abner sees the writing on the wall. He sees that uh, the house of Saul is on the way out, and so he switches allegiance. He acknowledges David as king. He's met with grace and with peace from King David. When Joab discovers this, he's furious. He takes matters into his own hands. He murders Abner, in part to avenge his brother's death and also to remove what he no doubt sees as a threat to himself and to David. David doesn't want to have a bar of it. He's at pains to make sure everyone knows that Abner's murder was not, jo- sorry, it was Joab's doing and not, uh, he had nothing to do with it. So throughout these chapters, we've seen Abner and Joab take matters into their own hands to advance their own cause, whilst David waits patiently upon the Lord to bring, bring in his kingdom in his timing. Now, this brings us up to chapter 4, to today's passage, where we see the response of Ishbosheth and of Israel. Now, there's a summary um, of the trajectory of these chapters at the start of chapter 3, where it says in 3 verse 1, it says, David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And we see that play out. That's kind of a, that's a summary of these chapters. David is growing stronger. The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. We see that play out in chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel became alarmed. Now, where it says that Ishbosheth lost courage, literally it says his hands failed, his hands were, were weak. We might say he's, he's lost his grip, he gave up, and, and all Israel became alarmed, or you could translate that, they were terrified. So the commander of Saul's army, Abner, I mean, he'd gone to David, and now he's dead. What's going to happen to them, they're wondering. And, and at this initial stage, they may not have known yet that David wasn't responsible for Abner's death, and so 
I think terror is an understandable response. The house of Saul is becoming weaker and weaker. But then we're introduced to these two men, Ba'ana and Rechab. Verse 2 says, Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Ba'ana, the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Be'erathite from the tribe of Benjamin. Now it describes these two men as leaders of raiding bands, which doesn't sound particularly hopeful. Uh, gang leaders, bush rangers, we might say. But they are from the tribe of, of, uh, of Benjamin, the same tribe of, as Saul and Ishbosheth. So as the house of Saul grows weaker and weaker, will we still have these two men? Will they amount to anything? But then the story takes what seems like a sideways detour as we're introduced to a grandson of Saul. In verse 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So King Saul had a son, Jonathan, who had a son called Mephibosheth. Uh, and Mephibosheth had suffered a terrible accident as a five-year-old, falling, becoming lame in both feet. Just as an aside, uh, when Jenny and I were expecting our firstborn, uh, I suggested that if the baby was a boy, that there was a biblical precedent uh, as the son of Jonathan to, be called, to call him Mephibosheth. Jenny wasn't so keen, and uh, fortunately she wasn't, and we opted for James instead. But there you are, if you're, if you're looking for a good baby name, Mephibosheth. It's got all sorts of shortening potentials, uh, Phoebe, Mepha, Chef, oh, yeah, anyway, Jenny wasn't keen. Why are we introduced to Mephibosheth at this point? Here's a, here's a, a theory. Perhaps it's to, to further illustrate the state of the house of Saul. I mean, what are we left with here? We've got a dead commander. We've got a weak-handed king, a terrified people, two gang leaders and a lame grandson who was probably about 12 years old by this stage. The weaker and weaker house of Saul is not looking good. But we still have these two sons of Rimmon. What will they do? Well, it turns out that, uh, that like Abner and Joab, these two are also men of action that try to take matters into their own hands. They, they see the writing on the wall that the house of Saul is done, and so they act to try to secure their own position in David's coming kingdom. And what unfolds seems to be well-planned, premeditated violence. Verse 5, Now Rechab and Ba'ana, the sons of Rimon, the Be'erathite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Ba'ana slipped away. Uh, they would have been trusted servants of Ishbosheth, uh, able to, to enter his house without raising any concerns. They used their position to assassinate their king. Now we're given that, that summary, and then we're given a more detailed account in verse 7, where it says, They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. 
Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Here we see their motive. They've acted in violence to advance David's kingdom by taking out the rival king Ishbosheth. Presumably they're hoping for some kind of reward from David for their for being so helpful to him. But notice, notice three things here about them. Firstly, notice their self-interest. They try unsuccessfully to, to secure their own position by winning the favour of the king. Secondly, notice their, their religious hypocrisy. They claim God's endorsement of their wicked actions. They say, this day the Lord has avenged my Lord the King against Saul and his offspring. They, they claim to be doing God's work as they commit cold-blooded murder. And thirdly, notice their godless pragmatism. They, they, they do whatever works, or whatever they think will work, by whatever means. And I think there's a lesson here for us. I doubt any of us have considered assassination as a good way to advance the kingdom of God. But sadly, it's not uncommon for Christians to seek to advance God's kingdom through immoral and disgraceful means. I think it's tragic the number of Christian leaders and Christian people who've done wicked things in the pursuit of self-interested success and claim God's endorsement along the way. We must make sure that we don't go the same way. We must make sure that that we love righteousness more than we love success. Well, if these wicked assassins thought that they were on the path to the king's favour, they were badly mistaken. They really should have done their homework. Because this situation is very much like that that we read in chapter 1, where the Amalekite told David of Saul's death and claimed that he was the one to strike the final blow. We can presume that uh, Rechab and Baana didn't know about that, otherwise they wouldn't have acted uh, so foolishly. And so David tells them, verse 9, he says, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, here is um, why David doesn't take matters into his own hand, he trusts the Lord who, who delivers him, he trusts the Lord's timing, Continues verse 10, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid rid the earth of you? You see here, God's king upholds righteousness. Self-interested, hypocritical, pragmatic wickedness is punished by God's king. And so verse 12, David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies on the pool by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. David honored the son of Saul. He honored Ishbosheth, giving him a proper burial, but these wicked enemies of the house of Saul are brought to justice. The other lesson to learn here is that that wickedness can't thwart God's kingdom. 
In fact, God is so sovereignly in control that he can even use the wicked acts of men like Rechab and Baana and those of Judas and those who killed Jesus. He can use their wicked acts to bring about his kingdom. There's great comfort for us in knowing that God is in control and his king, Jesus, is on his throne. And the opposition and wicked actions of people do nothing to threaten his sovereign rule, nothing to stop the coming of his kingdom. Well, then what's the way forward? We've seen over these these, uh, chapters the, the schemes and efforts of different people to either oppose or to hasten the coming of God's kingdom. Abner, Joab, Asahel, Rechab, Baana, their efforts were unsuccessful. But God is the one who will bring in his kingdom in his time and in his way. And so at last, when we get to chapter 5, we see the way forward for Israel. As at last they come to David and they anoint him king over them. And I want us to notice three important details here about what, what they say as they come before David. Because this illuminates the way forward for us too, as we live in this world, as we live and respond to God's King. Notice firstly, they speak of who we are. Verse 1, they say, we are your own flesh and blood. Notice it's not, they don't say, you are our own flesh and blood. They're not saying you're ours. They're saying, we're yours. We're your body, we're your own flesh and and blood. We belong to you, King David. Secondly, they speak of who you are. Verse 2, they say, In the past, while Saul was king over us, you, David, were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. You are our saviour, they say. You are the one who defeats our enemies. And thirdly, they speak of what God has promised. Verse 2 continues, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. God promised that David would be a shepherd for his people, a shepherd who protects, who feeds, who nurtures, who cares for his people. And so they came to the king saying, We belong to you. You are our saviour. Be our shepherd. And notice the reception that the king gives them. Verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. King over Israel at last. But notice he made the covenant with them. He's the initiator of the covenant. He's the ruler, their saviour, their shepherd. And friends, here's the model. Here's the model for, for our response to God's ultimate king, King Jesus. As we live in this broken world with its rival kingdoms, with its rival powers, perhaps we're alarmed, perhaps we're dismayed, even terrified, like sheep without a shepherd, harassed, helpless, But we needn't be like sheep without a shepherd because we can come to God's King Jesus and say to him, we are your body. We belong to you. 
You are our saviour who defeats our ultimate enemies of sin and death. And God has promised that you will be our shepherd. We do face all sorts of challenges, all sorts of difficulties in life. And we're not to to look to ourselves and our own selfish means to secure our own advancement. As uh, Rechab and Ba'ana did. No, instead we can look to God's true King, to Jesus, our Saviour, our Shepherd, the one to whom we belong. The way forward is to trust him as our our King, as our Saviour, as our ruler. So let's come before him now and pray. Will you pray with me? Our Lord God and loving, gracious, heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have installed your true King upon his throne, our Lord Jesus. We praise you that you are sovereign over all things, even over suffering and difficulty, even over those who oppose you. We praise you that nothing can thwart your purposes and the final coming of your kingdom. Father, we pray that we would love righteousness more than success. Guard us from being motivated by self-advancement. And Father, turn our hearts to you, to the Lord Jesus, that we would say, we are your body, you are our saviour, be our shepherd. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.